Chelsea, what did you think of Esteban? <laughs> Your face. I wish our listeners could see it. <laughs> I wish I could just put my face in the show notes. dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. As two nerdy bookworms, we appreciate the role of classic lit, but we won't get too academic about it. We'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe, and help stock your TBR pile with old and new reads for every literary taste. Today, we're discussing The House of the Spirits by Isabel Allende, chapters one through six. Hey, Chelsea. Hi, Sarah. How are you today? Good. I'm just trying to keep an eye on my podcast partner over here. (laughs) Penny doesn't know what to do with herself because my office is rearranged a little bit. Um, But Penny is really excited to talk about House of the Spirits. Yeah, me too. Um, This is the second time we are handling a big book this way, dividing it into two episodes. So today we're going to be talking about chapters one through six of the House of the Spirits. We don't have pairings for you today, but then in two weeks, we'll talk about the second half of the book and share our pairings. So today is a little bit more, I would say, of a broad discussion. Fine if you have not finished or haven't even attempted to read this book, I think, Um, and then we'll get a little bit deeper on our next episode. Yeah, I'm excited to dive into this because this is a book that's been on our list from the beginning and a book that you have especially championed as one that you knew you really wanted to talk about on the podcast sometime. So can you tell us a little bit about how you came to this book, what your first reading experience was like, and then what it was like to read it a second time for the podcast? Yeah, I I only read this for the first time not even a year ago. I read it last summer. And I I can't remember why I picked it up. I I think I, you know, I have kind of a a list in my head of authors that I know I should read at some point. Just pick up a book by by these authors. And Isabel Allende has been one of those for many, many years. And I think The House of the Spirits is just the title I was most familiar with. I also had, you know, spent a lot of time uh, with reading goals where (laughs) I was trying to read a certain number of books a year and had therefore been putting off longer books. And so I think I was drawn to the House of the Spirits too, because it's, it's longer and I wanted to really sink into a story. So I, I picked this up. I actually, I mean, I very much admit, and I'll be curious to hear your experience with this as well, that it took me a while to get into it, that it just, I wasn't finding myself reaching for it frequently. I would kind of forget where I was when I left off and then have trouble getting back into this world and these characters. And then I just kind of found a system that worked for me where I read one chapter a day. I like set aside an hour to read a chapter because they're long chapters and then read it over the course of a couple of weeks. 
And I was just so swept away by this story. It had been a long, long time since I read a book that just felt like being told a story that like as a reader, I was much more passive. I was just kind of accepting this story into my brain and accepting these characters into my life and just taking it in that way. And you'll probably listeners hear me talk about that a lot because I think that's one of my favorite components of this book is that it just has that kind of oral storytelling feel to it. So yeah, I totally, I I loved it. It's so different from other classics that we've talked about on the podcast, but still has great connections to other books I love. And well, I'll, I'll stop there and I want to hear about your first time reading it and then I'll tell you about rereading it for the podcast. This is a book I found for like 99 cents at Goodwill one day. I really love the copy that I have, the vintage copy with the super creepy but beautiful cover and it has sat on my bookshelf for a long time so it's like you said one of those books that I knew I wanted to read someday I knew I wanted to read Isabella Ende but I just didn't pick it up until we chose it for the podcast and I had the same experience of having a difficult time getting into it getting acclimated um And I think I have said, I don't remember if it was on a bonus episode or on the show, but I remember saying a lot of it had to do more with my brain than the book because I knew if I could break it into one chapter a day and if I could set aside that time to focus, I could, but my brain was just really resisting that. It's just been hard for me to focus in general. So I decided to go for the audio book version. And I really, really liked it in part because there are two narrators and this is a dual narrated book. That is how Iende wrote it. And so having the two different voices was just a really lovely signal to me as I was listening. And I, I often enjoy multiple narrators on an audiobook, So that was fabulous. And then like you said, the quality of just being told a story. You're not making guesses as to what's going to happen next because sometimes it's laid out for you because there are characters who know what's going to happen next or you know what fate is going to bring to these characters or it's completely surprising. It's not one of those books. It's not even really one of the books where you get to know the characters really in depth. I don't want to say that it's surface level because this book is so detailed and Allende really builds this vibrant world, but I don't know that I like know the characters super well. You know, they're they're explained to you, they're described to you, um, but you're not necessarily you're you're only in um, in a couple of their minds. You're not like alternating perspectives in that way, and it, you're just learning the story of the family. It's really like reading a genealogy. So audio worked really well. That means that I, because I listened to it on audio, um, names are tricky for me. So keeping track of those, especially once there's another Esteban introduced (laughs) towards the end, I'm like, which Esteban are we talking about here? Um, And um, sort of trying to remember what happened when is murky, but that's not just because of the audio book. That's because of the 
storytelling here. So I really enjoyed my audiobook experience, but I do feel like there are probably some things that I missed from not having eyes on the page. Um, but that's just what worked for me in the moment. And I really liked it. I also, I will say in order to supplement that I used spark notes quite a bit and it was super, super helpful to keep characters straight, to keep events straight. Um, just to review some things, to be listening, kind of know what I was listening for. So I'm a big proponent of spark notes for, for books like this. I agree. I used the spark notes quite a bit as well. I I think in part, you know, I had given this book 20 hours previously and had already read it and not that long ago. So I didn't read it with the same um, steadiness and diligence as I did the first time. I I more I, I didn't skim, but I read more quickly and then looked at spark notes to check to make sure I was was understanding and and remembering correctly. And it was super helpful. And I would highly recommend that for our listeners if you are struggling to get into this book or just, you know, like, like we both talked about, struggling to pick it up and then put it down and remember where where you were and who was who and all of that. The Spark Notes is super helpful for that. And because it does just kind of feel like being told and wrapped up in the story. I I don't feel like even reading the spark notes ahead of time feels like a spoiler. Like you just kind of get the bare bones and then the way Iende tells you the story and takes you on the ride is obviously much more enhanced by reading the book itself. Yeah, and I don't know if it says something about me and how often I've used spark notes since the age of like 13. <laughs> but I just have a way of reading spark notes where I feel like I can read the summary or read a chapter summary and just pick up on a couple of key plot points and some character names so that I know just a couple of things that I'm listening for, but I still end up being surprised by Mm -hmm. how it all happens, how it all comes together, how the characters are interacting. So it's almost like I skim spark notes Mm -hmm. and could I explain how? I don't know. (laughs) I just think the more that you you read with this method and the more you use spark notes to supplement your reading, you figure out what method works best. Um, and it, it definitely proved helpful for keeping track of so many characters in this book. I also, just for our discussion today, but I think it would be something that would be totally useful for readers is I created just like a little family tree so I could see how everyone was related. Did they have anything like that in the front of your copy? Cause it's not in my vintage copy. No. And I think it would really help. It would. (laughs) Like they should have a family tree in there. Um, I think that that would be super helpful, but just drawing one out and that act of drawing it out and just like writing a couple notes about the characters can really help cement it in your memory. So for anyone who's just picking it up, but. Totally. And I like doing that just like right on the inside cover so I can keep referring back to, to that. I completely Agree. And you could probably find a family tree online, but then just sketching it yourself in in your book. Yeah, it really cements it in your brain. Something that you love about this book is Isabel Allende's style, the way that she writes it, the way, like you said, like you're being told a story. It's very cinematic Mm -hmm. in that you just sort of feel like you are 
um, sweeping over the setting and just there's, you're gathering so much information about this family and um, what's going on with them. But it is more of that like sweep across rather than super in-depth about a couple of characters. You're getting this overarching story about a whole family and how they came to be and how all of their life events intertwine. So what do you, what else do you love about Ayende style? How does she go about creating this feeling of just being told a story or being taken on a journey like this? I think a lot of it for me is the kind of circular storytelling and the tangents that she goes on, which are a are also part of what makes this book kind of challenging to settle into and tricky to read at times. And and we're we're really only talking about chapters one through six here, but because sometimes even in chapters one through six, she flashes ahead and tells us something that happens in the future. It's hard to keep straight everything that happens in the first half versus the second half, right? So those those tangents, those asides, those like, you know, I didn't know at the time that's I think that's how many people and and also I think there might be some cultural specificity to this some cultures tell stories where it's not linear in the way that this cause led to this effect which which led you know to this subsequent effect on and on and on it's much more web-like and the causes and effects get murkier um the just the idea that as she's telling a story or writing the story it, it just feels like she can't help but insert this little detail even though it's not important or go off on this tangent even though that's not going to matter for another hundred pages I really think that's just how so many people speak and especially if they were going to tell a whole family story. Like if your grandparents were sitting down with you to tell you the story of, of the family, I feel like for many, many people, that's how it would unfold. And so I, I love that. It feels very natural, even though it's certainly a craft and something that she's doing intentionally and for you know thematic and and storytelling effect but it kind of i mean this is this book is not stream of consciousness but it kind of feels like somebody just sat down just wrote their story right, and then put it out into the world i think in part it really i don't know i keep thinking back to the fact that this book started as a letter to her grandfather and what must that letter have read like that it turned into this book? I keep wondering that too. And I even tried to do like some Googling online to see if I could find early drafts. And I, I didn't come up with anything yet, maybe in JSTOR or something. But yeah, I'm so curious about that. Yeah. Or maybe she's saving it to publish later in, I, I don't know, a different book or something. But I am fascinated by that. And I, that's something that I kept thinking about while reading is like this started as a letter to her grandfather what on earth did that letter read like and how did that inspire this to spin out I like your description of web-like because cause and effect is prominent in this novel 
And often you'll get sort of a character that shows up in one chapter for a little while and later they show up again and you have to kind of trace back where they were and what happened and how it's all interconnected. And it is more like weaving a web of stories rather than this happened, so this happened. Um, You can still see that cause and effect and you can still see that sort of, well, this person was angry, so they did this. Um, You can still see all of that, but it is... Uh, it is much more tangled. And I mean, listening to it, it it was lovely because I was often surprised when a character showed up again or when you were sort of realizing all of the steps that it had taken to get to this point. It made for some really satisfying reveals and just, yeah, it was fascinating. And yeah, gosh, they're just, there are so many characters in this book, though, <laughs> to keep track of. Yes, there are so many characters. And and like you said, names get repeated, um, especially in the second half. That happens a lot, a lot more. I am a reader who, for better or worse, I am totally fine not having a firm grasp on every detail as I'm reading. Mm-hmm. Like if I can't remember, you know, which which Esteban we're talking about or which Pedro Garcia we're talking about, I just keep going and assume that I'll figure <laughs> it out in a few pages. <laughs> yeah. And so, but I, you know, not every reader is is like that. And I'm, again, I'm not saying that that is a better way to read. That is just how I read. And so if you are someone who, you know, gets to that name and you're like, oh, who is this? I have to backtrack and figure that out. This would be a, a really challenging read. Yeah, that's where you definitely need your family tree yes. traced in the front of your book for sure. Yes. Another key element of Iendi's writing is magical realism, which permeates the House of the Spirits. I mean, you can tell from the title that it's going to be otherworldly. And I was so struck by the way that it was woven into the novel so subtly. Like you said, it just all feels very natural. And that's the way the magical realism is treated as well. And it's not that, so there were certain scenes or certain things that I was like, oh, I really want more details. Not in the sense of, I want to know how this works, because I know that's not magical realism. The point isn't to explain how it works, how the magic happens. That's not the point. The point is for it to just be a natural part of the world. But for instance, when Clara is sort of like, she enters almost like a coven of witches, Mm -hmm. basically. (laughs) She is with these other women and they're studying magic and they're studying, um, you know, communicating with the other worlds and they're studying different types of medicine and things like that. I'm like, I want to spend more time in this and I just want some scenes and I want dialogue between these women to learn what their lives are like. And so there were a lot of moments like that where I was left wanting more. And when I think about it in sort of like Um, If you were listening to your grandparents tell the story of your family or if you're listening to an oral history of a genealogy, 
you would want more. You would want those crumbs that you just can't pick up and that you can't grasp. And I felt like the little kid listening to the story was like, but wait, grandma, yeah, go back to the part where you were with those three women, like making potions and stuff. Can I not get more details on that? Totally. It's so true. She leaves you wanting more, which is <laughs> impressive considering how long this book is and how many details she does provide. And I do think that, you know, the book just ha- as a whole has a very matter of fact tone. And I, I am not familiar enough with magical realism as a genre or subgenre or in particular Latin American magical realism to know if that is a component of the genre as a whole or if that's more just Allende's style or this particular book. Regardless, it's very true for this book. So, and and sometimes I think that can lead to some, I don't know, problematic feelings about the text, which I'm sure we'll get into as well, because she describes both the magic and a lot of the violence with this very matter-of-fact tone, like this is just the way it was. Um, Rosa just had green hair. Clara just sees the future. And then, of course, also like, This character was just incredibly violent. And it's all very uh, subdued. And I love that in terms of of the magic because I think it just, like like you said, it's part of the natural feeling of the storytelling. Like, Like, you know, even if you as a reader... I, I mean, I think as a reader, you're supposed to believe in all of this magic, for sure, 100%. That's the point. But it's more important that the storyteller believes it and that, you know, the storyteller, in the storyteller's mind, Rosa had green hair, had translucent skin, and was the most beautiful woman in the world. And you just nod and go along with it, even though you want more details about it. Yeah, and the way that the book opens just sets you up to know that that's the way it's going to be through yes, the whole novel. Totally. Very clearly. Yeah. And I appreciate that because then you just kind of, you know what you're in for <laughs> rather than, I think it, a lot of magical realism I, I have read that it, those components are introduced kind of later in the book. And so you're already in this realistic world and then the magic's introduced and it can feel disconcerting or you're just kind of lost and not so with this one. She tells you right away. Um, that this is this is what this book is going to be. <laughs> and I appreciate that. Something else with the magical realism is that it it was a part of the characters and how they interacted with the world, but it didn't really influence their actions or the plot. So true. So they were always making their decisions. They were the ones moving the story forward. They are the players. The, the magic of the book, you know, might allow a character to see what's going to happen or might allow a character to commune with the dead or, you know, might just mean that a character looks a certain way, but it doesn't necessarily, the magic is not influencing the story. Mm-hmm. It's just part of the background. Yeah, totally. I think, you know, the the one exception to that is very very early in the book and i think this is as as clara is learning that the magic shouldn't influence her story that she does Mm -hmm. have her own agency as you're saying but it's when she makes kind of her first 
prediction. And she's not sure. She she knows that some something terrible is going to happen to your family and that Rosa is, is going to die. And after that comes true, she's not sure if she spoke it into existence or if she just saw it and knew it was going to happen. And, and that's when she stopped speaking for many, many years. But I think that that was kind of the whole point of that experience for her is that she realized that, you know, no, she didn't cause that, but she does have agency and she doesn't just have to kind of blindly follow the future she sees either, which is a really interesting tension because I think there are so many stories out there, more fantasy, pure fantasy stories about characters who can see the future and that the story really is about is it because they saw their future that led them to cause that future <laughs> to come into existence or not? And that that doesn't really get explored here, even though I think fate and coincidence and chance are and and being the agent of your own destiny are all themes in this book. Yeah, she's very she ends up being very matter of fact yeah. about the future. <laughs> And just kind of like dropping, dropping a truth bomb every now and then, like when Esteban is all nervous and hand wringing about how her pregnancy is going, she'll just be like, oh, well, I'm having twins and these are their names. Duh. I like how she just doesn't really let anyone else in on the things until, you know, it's, I don't know, almost too late. It's hilarious. Yeah. (laughs) And they all just got to go with it. Uh Uh-huh. Yep. So... She's great. I well, do enjoy that. I would say that the main protagonists of this book are these three women, but they are all linked by one of the narrators of, of the book and one of the central figures, sometimes antagonist, sometimes protagonist, um, Esteban Trueba. So, Chelsea, what did you think of Esteban? <laughs> <laughs> Your face. I wish our listeners could see <laughs> I wish I could just put my face in the show notes because it's really hard to explain. It's really complicated. Yes. Because I really hated him for so much of the novel. And then he ends up having a really close relationship with his granddaughter that really turns him around. And he starts to have a little bit of a redemption arc. And he really takes... A self-assessing look at his life, and I don't, I don't want to say he's fully redeemed by the end, but you can tell that he has learned from his actions and that he has a lot of regrets. And I don't think we often get that from problematic characters or people in real life. And I think that reading. It, it was tough because you would read about these horrible things that he did and then all of a sudden be plunged into his perspective. Mm-hmm. And it was uncomfortable for a good portion of the novel. Mm-hmm. But being wrapped up in his character in that way, I mean, it really allowed me to think about some big questions about what do we want accountability to look like? What do we want redemption to look like for people? Is that something that we're seeking? Um, because just to like put it really 
bluntly, he's abusive. He's a rapist. He's violent. He is a politician whose views are really anti, um, they're very classist and um, anti-peasant class. He's really against the poor and working class of his country. It's just, it was really tough. And there was like a specific passage where he was really detailing his political opinions. And it was like, oh, wow, this feels really real and too close to our American history of the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. And that was tough. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, I, th- I think particularly in the chapters we're focusing on today, he's a really vile character. But even that, there's complexity too because he's one of our narrators and he's our only first person narrator. So he's really, you know, the mind that we're in the most, if not for like the majority of pages, you know, he, he's the only first person narrator we get. So we see a lot through his eyes. I think it's really fascinating that the book doesn't attempt to really justify any of his behaviors or even give explanation for how he became so violent and and cruel. And I think there's maybe a little bit more there about how he developed his political views because his his mother was landed and wealthy and married below her class. And then, you know, Esteban grew up not in abject poverty, but, you know, of a much lower class and social status than he could have. And so, you know, I think that level of entitlement is, is clearly where some of his political views come from. But yeah, it's just, it's just fascinating that she doesn't, and I'm glad she doesn't, I don't want, (laughs) I don't want to be clear justification for his atrocious behaviors. It's just, it's a unique kind of position to be in where I'm not sure we're really supposed to be all that empathetic towards him, even though we are in his mind for part of the time, even though he's one of the central characters. I think just later on, we are supposed to understand that he does you know, have people in his life who he loves and who love him. And that, you know, I think maybe one of the the key takeaways for me from this book, and we'll talk about this more when we get to our second episode, is that like, you know, even some of the most atrocious people are loved and love and that that's not necessarily everything and enough to like wipe the slate clean by any means. It's just a reality. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't think, I don't think he's positioned as a character for us to root for. Certainly we are intended to uh, sort of be rooting for or be connected to the female characters of this book. But what then what's the point of having his narration in, you know, the story is rich enough, I think, without it. 
the story, you, you would still know what he's doing. You would still know what he did. You would still get to see how he interacted with these women. So what is, what is the point? Do we think it's because Allende, is he supposed to be a stand-in for her grandfather that she was writing to? And she wanted to sort of honor a complicated history of a man that she was in her life or was it just, you know, I'm, I would be curious to know the why behind it. Yeah, me too. I mean, I, I do think, I do think that he is the stand in for her, for her grandfather. And so I, I think that's probably why there is Again, like, I don't think we're really supposed to empathize with him, but other characters do at times. I don't know if this is the why, but it might be a why is that characters' motivations are so nuanced throughout this book, which is one thing I I really appreciate. Like, even some of the revolutionary characters who are on, like, you know, what we might consider like the right side of the political question, you know, aren't doing it for quote unquote the right reasons, right? They're motivated by something else. Or I, I think his position in the novel adds to that nuance because we love characters who love him. Mm-hmm. And so we are wrestling to understand that as readers, at least for me, I am. And even though I never got to the point where I empathize with or root for him or like him in any way, I have to be okay with the fact that other characters that I do love and root for really love him. And it's just a a unsettling experience, I think, because in, in novels, I think we usually find a clear delineation between our antagonists and protagonists here that doesn't exist. But I I feel like, once again, that's very true to life, that we might love people who have people in their lives. And we're like, what are what are you doing with that person? Mm -hmm. I have to think that it is that it has a lot to do with INDA wrestling with her own family's history and questions, Mm -hmm. especially just because we know the way that this book originated was related to her family. And because we know that they had different political ties and that there, there is a complicated history there. I have to think that this book is a way of her wrestling through some of the history of her own family. Not that this is completely autobiographical or that everything is exactly what happened in her life, but just the themes, I think. And I think she is a writer who actually shares in interviews the way that she wrestles with life's problems is through writing literature. Um, So I, I have to think that that's a big part of why she made him a narrator and wanted to explore his character in that way. I agree. I uh, I think we should wrestle with this more in our part two episode when we see more of his redemption arc. Mm-hmm. But let's turn to one of the characters who, at least for me, I 
unquestionably was rooting for and just loved. And that's Clara. So Clara, the clairvoyant, (laughs) she can see the future. And she is the youngest child in, in her family. She grows up in a very wealthy and prominent family. Esteban Truebo first wants to marry Clara's beautiful older sister, Rosa. And when Rosa passes away, eventually Esteban and Clara marry. And it's a very matter-of-fact marriage. Clara has basically stopped speaking for a decade, and then one day she says, I'm going to marry Esteban Trueba. And he comes over and he's very awkward. And she asks him, so do you want to marry me? He says, yes, they get married. And they have a really fascinating relationship where he is infatuated and in love with her in perhaps an unhealthy and obsessive way. And she just married him because she knew that's what she was supposed to do or was going to do and never quite feels the same way about him, even though, but she also never says that to him. Um, Yeah. But, but Clara is, you know, even outside of her relationship with Esteban, very matter of fact, very, very like practical and to the point for somebody who is also very mystical (laughs) And in touch with the other worlds, sort of, sort of thing. Yeah. What What do you think of Clara? Yeah, she. It doesn't seem like, aside from the connection with her daughter Blanca, it doesn't seem like she's living in the world. It seems like she's sort of hovering above everyone, or like she's maybe lost in the spirit realm, or sort of in a different otherworldly place oh totally that's a great way to describe it (laughs) and so as much as I think she's such a fascinating character you don't necessarily get that those relationships from her or a sense of how she feels about others because she's just in her own world all the time Um, and then pops in every now and then to just like state hey by the way (laughs) I'm gonna be pregnant for like a whole two years or something <laughs> bonkers like that. But nobody worry. It's going to be fine. <laughs> yeah. Or when she's just, yeah. Well, I was about to get into the second half, so I'll hold on to that. But yeah, she um, is completely, it's not her own world. I think like if we met somebody like Clara in real life, we would say she's, you know, someone who just lives in her own world, but she lives in like the spirit world. She is very much in community and communication with other people in her reality who have similar spiritual connections, but also with the the spirits and entities she kind of communes with even though like we don't really get to see what that is we just know Mm -hmm. that that exists for for Clara and that's one of the parts where I think a lot of readers would like more more details but yeah it's so interesting that 
we don't get to know Clara very well, but we also feel, I think, that that's probably how the other characters are with her as well. They want to know her. They want to be with her. She's so special, but she's really quite impossible for anyone to know, it seems. I do think we get to know her through her children. Mm -hmm. In who her children become and their characteristics and the way that she treats them. She is incredibly nurturing. And you can see that, I think, I'm thinking of a specific passage where it talks about how she really doted on Blanca and the way she taught her and took her with her everywhere and their close relationship. And then her twin boys, she didn't really have the same relationship with them when they were little. They were sent off to boarding school. But when they come back as adults, they do have this really close relationship. And those twin boys... We don't have them on the character list, but they're actually some of my favorites because for as much as, you know, we're rooting for the the women of this novel, Jaime and Nicolas, they really disrupt gender roles mm-hmm. in a way that none of the other dudes in this book do. And you can just tell that they really got a lot of their mother. Absolutely. Well, and she... We we see a lot of her her values and beliefs right come through in in her actions, both in terms of how she raised her children, but also how she she wants to teach the the peasants who work for her husband, and she she sometimes you know maybe pushes them farther than they're ready at times, but she just, she really values like lifting people up and she's, she's a wonderful figure and it's, you know, kind of unclear like where she, where a lot of that came from, but it seems that it's just so integral to who, who she is. I love what you said about getting to know her through, through her children and she she raises three very interesting and complicated kids. She also I I find it fascinating that at a certain point she just tells Esteban he can't come to her bed anymore. <laughs> and he's like, why? And she says, We don't like each other. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's like, well, I like you. And she's like, yeah. no, we don't, we don't get along anymore. <laughs> I love her, like, just wit and practicality. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. Oh, goodness. So what did you think of her daughter, Blanca, then? So Blanca, I, I feel like of the three women, Blanca remains the most kind of ephemeral to me, like the hardest to, to really grasp. I mean, she seems for so much of the novel, like Clara's little mini me or little Mm -hmm. shadow. Um, but she is rebellious in her own way and has one of the best love stories of the book. I think, um, all of these, (laughs) all of these women meet their 
eventual lovers at very, very young ages. <laughs> Blanca meets Pedro when she is three. And every summer when she goes to this the, the farm that her father owns and runs, they spend all and all of their time together. It's really, I mean, it happens quickly in a matter of pages, but over the course of, of 10 or 11 years, uh, we see them fall in love. And I, I like how Blanca, much like Clara, gets there first. She's like, you know, she kind of comes into adolescence first and realizes what her feelings for Pedro are before he re- realizes his for her. And this is you know, it's dangerous and it is rebellious because there is a major class divide between Blanca and Pedro. And I love that she knows what she wants anyways. Yeah, it seemed to me like, I mean, she's she's the romantic heroine of the novel in every sense of the word. Not just because of her romance, but just because of her rebelliousness, because of that class difference because of the way that she goes against her father and the choices that she makes. I also, yeah, I liked her relationship with her brothers. I and I just enjoyed the scenes with her and and the family aside from when her father was being abusive towards her, um, which I don't remember was in part one or part two. I think, but, I think we end right around there in our part one. Yeah. But she is definitely more, I don't know, with Clara, Clara has agency in part because she's writing everything down, right? Her This book is supposed to be like based on her journals and Clara has agency because she tells, tells it like it is, this is what's going to happen in the future. But Blanca just seems so much more active mm-hmm. and there's that passion there that you can see in her that you don't necessarily get with Clara and it it made for a fun reading experience some of those chapters with with her and Pedro and their romance were my favorites because the they were fascinating and we'll talk a lot about the class differences in our next episode as we chat about theme I'm sure but yeah, and then just the way, I mean, we'll also talk about the way that their romance pops up throughout the whole rest of the book because it's not like it just stops there. Blanca and Pedro have a daughter, even though Blanca gets married to another man and there's, you know, a whole there's a whole thing that happens later, but Blanca and Pedro have a daughter, Alba, and Alba's story, it's funny because, so I actually, part of the circular nature of this is that we never fully move into the next generation's story. Mm -hmm. The past one or two generations are still there influencing and operating. So I think with a lot of family novels that follow genealogy, you go from one generation to the next, either alternating or like a very clear delineation of like part one is this generation, part two is this generation, and there's a very clear stopping point, which isn't how life works. Yes. Like I I still talk to my grandmother. <laughs> yeah. Like she's she is still alive. She is still telling you. She me still stories. has like, her own story. Right. Yeah. Um 
And so with this, by the time that we get to Alba, Blanca's daughter and Clara's granddaughter, we're still getting stories about Blanca and Clara and Esteban. And we're still getting, you know, the the previous generations. They're still totally wrapped up. And that was something listening on audio, I had to constantly kind of like check like, okay, well, is there a focus character here? Is that the point? Because my brain really wanted to follow at least one main character Mm -hmm. in each chapter, but that wasn't always what was going on. No. Yeah. I think by the the time we get to the end, we've sort of distilled into that, but you're right. It, it is, it is all web-like <laughs> once again. Mm-hmm. I, I hadn't really thought about that comparison between other multi-generational novels, but I like I like that a lot. It's so true. I feel like this circular storytelling is totally catching up with our best laid plans here, Chelsea, because it's really hard to talk about just the first half of this book because it's all so intertwined and back and forth. But um We will talk more about Alba, that third generation character in our our next episode when she makes her appearance in a later chapter. And of course, we won't let go of these other three characters either because they still have their parts to play. But before we wrap up our part one discussion, was there anything else about the first half of the novel that you want to chat about? I'm trying to think. I mean, I think the main reason we wanted to touch on Alba is because she is the narrator. Yes. So when you're reading third-person narration, you are getting Alba, who is basically recording her family's history, telling the story based on Clara's journals. And then interspersed in that, you get first-person narration from Esteban, who is telling his own version of events and his own side of the story. Yeah, and and that's you know, I think like hinted at throughout and then there's kind of a reveal of it, but I think it's so helpful to know that Mm -hmm. just from the beginning. And I'm, I'm curious about your listening experience because like, this isn't alternating perspectives in terms of like one chapter is Alba and Mm -hmm. the next chapter is Esteban. So did the narrators switch back and forth like mid chapter as it was appropriate? That's so interesting. Yeah. As soon as Esteban's part came up that it was the Esteban narrator he was he was reading or he was narrating so yeah they didn't like alternate chapters it was just it was truly the dual narration was split by Alba versus Esteban which was perfect for keeping track yeah I think that's so interesting because you are obviously as a reader very aware that there are two you know two narrators and that they're kind of going back and forth and, and splitting the storytelling. What's less clear sometimes is that they don't always agree on interpretations of events mm-hmm. or who the character, like Esteban has a very different view of Clara than Alba does. And that is sometimes hard to pick up on the page, I think, because you just, there there aren't really clear markings about when you're switching narrator. It's mm-hmm. obvious because it switches from third to first, but yeah, it's it takes just, your brain a little bit to exactly, catch up. Exactly. That's exactly right. So I love that. I think that would be a really 
listening would be a really interesting way to think about the way each narrator sees the story a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. It's just remarkable to me. It's always remarkable to me how authors keep track of stories as they write or in their head. But it's remarkable to me that Isabel Allende is able to write something like this and track all the stuff. Surely she had, I mean, the note cards or the notes on the wall or the track. I mean, I would love to know her whole process. Agreed. And and I mean, I, this takes us right back to the beginning of the episode where it's so amazing that it really feels like somebody just sat down and wrote this because of the way it comes across as that very authentic, natural storytelling. But then you start thinking about it and talking about it and you realize how much planning and checking and cross-checking and rereading must have gone into crafting the novel that ended up in such a stream or that ended up in such a sweeping storytelling feel. Well, I think one thing that we could leave listeners with as we close out our discussion on part one and prep them for the next chapters. So part two, will cover the rest of the book, chapters seven through 14. And we'll talk about a little bit about what happens towards the end. And we'll talk about themes in the next episode. But I, I really like epigraphs and I like to revisit them periodically. I like to revisit them as I'm reading and then at the end. So I think we should read the Pablo Neruda um, epigraph now for listeners to keep in mind as they keep reading. And then we can come back to it as we discuss and kind of talk about what it means in part two. So in the front pages of the book here, we have from Pablo Neruda, how much does a man live after all? Does he live a thousand days or one only for a week or for several centuries? How long does a man spend dying? What does it mean to say forever? I love that. Oh, I'm, I think that is a great way to end and to set us up for some themes to think about for, for next week and maybe to think about the poet who will show up in the second half of this book. We don't have pairings for you all today. We do have picks of the week. I also wanted to throw out, if you're reading this like along with us, trigger warnings for the second half of the book. We've already um, encountered rape and violence and domestic abuse in the first half. We will see that again in the second half along with child molestation, which isn't graphic or really even on the page. But we know that it happens. And once again, it's described in that Allende matter-of-fact tone, which I think, depending on who you are as a reader, makes it harder or, or less hard to read on the page. But just know that going in if you are reading along with us. And Chelsea, what is your pick of the week this week? I just have a recommendation. So... Something that we've talked about maybe maybe just individually before or on the podcast is 
the importance and the joy of reading books that aren't targeting you as an audience. And that's how I felt reading The House of the Spirits. I felt like I did a lot of stopping to look things up. And there was just a lot of historical context, even though this isn't um, set in a specific place, we can interpret that it is probably set in Chile and in Allende's home country or that it's based on um, Chilean politics and culture. So uh, yeah, that was just the type of reading experience that I had as, as a white American reader with no Latin American roots or ties. Um, and so something that I found myself researching was slave trade in Chile and indigenous Chileans for historical context, because several times throughout the novel, there are characters referred to as Indians or characters who are hinted at having darker skin. There, There's a lot of race stuff happening in here that is subtext. And I just found myself wanting to understand and grapple with that a little bit better. So um, just a quick Google search will give you some research of slavery in Chile and indigenous groups and peoples in, in the country all the way up to today. And so just that extra historical context, it is not necessarily like that is not... Um, this is background for the novel, but I still think it's really important because of the way that the characters treat um, indigenous characters in in the novel. And I was just really curious about how Ayende was approaching approaching these groups. So just a little bonus research recommendation for everyone. That's a great recommendation. There are a lot better, more thorough places to do this research. Mm -hmm. Um, but I'll throw out as a place to start. I really like John Green's world history crash course videos. He makes them for basically for AP world history students in high school. But so they're like very understandable, like 10 to 15 minute clips. And I watched some of the uh, Latin America ones as I was reading this and, and they were again, you know, not the deepest, but a, a good jumping off mm-hmm. point. And then my pick is a TED Talk, a short one, uh, like 12-minute video called Magical Realism Embracing the Absurdity of Latin America by Andres Hermida. Andres Hermida is a Colombian filmmaker i think he was like 18 or 19 when he gave this ted talk and you'll just be like blown away yeah (laughs) so (laughs) impressive and he talks about how the specifics of he's talking mostly about colombian culture that's where he's from but he does expand it to kind of a larger latin american viewpoint and and history and ideology but how all of all of the cultural history of Latin America leads to magical realism and lends itself best to that type of storytelling. And I'm not going to attempt to paraphrase why that is because you should just go listen to to him and, and watch this video. But I, I thought it was great and 
really helped me appreciate even more the magical realism that Allende was putting into this book. And if you still want some supports, you want some people to chat about this book with, you want to connect with us more, this month for our Patreon community, we are discussing the House of the Spirits. We are teaching a class on how to look for themes as we read. That class is a We record our classes, so that class will be available no matter when you can tune in on Patreon. And we've just been having so much fun getting to know our community of readers over there. We would love to see you. So to chat with us and the rest of Classics Club as we are reading The House of the Spirits and then at the end of the month when we are all finished in order to get our live and recorded classes, in order to get bonus episodes, go to patreon.com slash novel pairings and join our community. In addition, if you want to be the first to know about what's happening over on Patreon or what's happening in the world of novel pairings, you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at novelpairings.substack.com. We can't wait to hear all about your experience reading The House of the Spirits. So be sure to tag us on Instagram at novelpairingspod to share your thoughts. We also love to see when and where you're listening so tag us in those Instagram stories. We would also so appreciate it if you would keep spreading the word about novel pairings, either by word of mouth, telling your reader friends about us, or sending a friend a link to today's episode or a favorite episode. And of course, it always makes a huge difference to us and to the podcast when you write a review on Apple Podcasts. If you can take 10 seconds today to do that after listening that would mean the world to us thank you to miles eichner and mark anderson for our theme music next week we'll be back with an episode full of classic book club recommendations until then we declare after all there is no enjoyment like reading how much sooner one tires of anything